Welcome back to the South African Border Wars podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode two. While we're ostensibly peering at southwestern Angola, we'll also need to take into account what was going on in the region, such as the Belgian Congo, for example. But first, we need to understand what happened in German South West Africa through the early part of the 20th century to get a feel for the nuance of what was going on. By 1914, the German colony had been developing slowly but steadily, but it was very much a backwater even amongst the hazy list of obscure colonies. It was the discovery of diamonds in 1908 near Luderitz in the south of the country that sparked a frenzy of German interest. An avalanche of fortune hunters descended on this desert land in a few months, and if you travel there today, you'll find a region dotted with ghostly reminders of that time, buildings disappearing under the weight of shifting desert sands. The Germans quickly declared this area as Sperchabit, or forbidden, and the prospectors were chased away. This wild diamond rush didn't last long, but nearby Luderitz had grown large enough to become a sustainable community. That Sperchabit remains in place. You need a permit now on parts of the coast, or you'll find yourself thrown into jail if you go diamond prospecting there these days. By 1912, the port town already had 1,100 German inhabitants and trade was surging. Two years later, the outbreak of the First World War ushered in another period of major change for the residents of Southwest Africa. As the tension grew between Great Britain and Germany, Southwest became more significant. When war broke out in 1914, London asked South African Prime Minister Louis Boerter to send his army into German Southwest Africa to secure the Atlantic seaboard. Germans were operating a series of radio towers there which communicated with U-boats prowling the Atlantic Ocean. But Boerter's decision to go ahead with the invasion of German Southwest Africa was not supported by all South Africans. The Boer War had ended only 12 years earlier and hardliners from that conflict wanted to continue fighting the English. South African troops were mobilized along the border between the two countries under the command of General Henry Lucan and Lieutenant Colonel Marnie Moritz early in September 1914. Providing Marnie Moritz with arms, ammunition and a battalion was not a wise decision as he was one of the hardest of the Boer hardliners. Naturally, he thanked Prime Minister Louis Boerter for the arms and ammunition, then promptly rebelled and called on all whites in the former South African Republic and Orange Free State, as well as the Cape Province and Natal, to take up arms against Louis Boerter. Eventually, Moritz gathered 12,000 rebels around him, ready to fight for the cause in what became known as the Boer Revolt. Louis Boerter moved fast and declared martial law, which meant these two erstwhile leaders of the Boer War were now going into battle against each other. The South African army initially fought a war on two fronts then, one against its own people and the other against the Germans. The first skirmish against the Germans did not end well for Boerter. The South Africans were defeated at the Battle of Sandfontein on the 26th September 1914. The Germans then launched a preemptive strike and attacked the South Africans once more at Kakamas in the Northern Cape near the southwest border, and that was in February 1915. They were trying to take control of an important series of fords over the Orange River, but this time the South Africans fought them off. Firefights and skirmishes continued, but by late February 1915, Marnie Moritz's rebellion had been crushed and the South Africans could concentrate on the occupation of German Southwest Africa. Boerter took personal command of the army, splitting his force in two, taking the northern part and heading for Swakopmund, while Jan Smuts led the southern forces. 
By mid-February, Boerte had built up a large South African force using the port of Valpus Bay, which is only a few kilometres from Swakopmund, and by March, Boerte was ready. He used the Swakop Valley and its railway line to advance inland. Within a few weeks, he had overcome German forces at Ochimbingwe, Karabib, Friedrichsfelde, Willemstal and Okahanja. General Boerte entered Windhoek on the 5th of May 1915, and then Germans there offered to surrender. Boerte, though, refused to accept their terms and continued attacking German settlements in isolated areas. And then he broke up his force into four contingents, other Kuhn Brits, Lucan, Mani Boerte and Maybach. Brits went north to Ochivarongo, Ucho and Itoshapan and managed to cut off German forces in the interior from the coastal regions of Kuneni and Kaukafelt. The other three columns fanned out in the northeast. Lucan went along the railway line running from Swakopmund to Tsumib. The other two columns advanced on Lucan's right front. Maibuch targeted Otavi Junction and Mani Boerte had his eyes on Tsumib, which was the terminus of the strategic railway. The men who commanded these columns were highly experienced soldiers from the Boer War and the Germans were now facing well-trained veterans of that conflict. Eventually, the German forces made a last stand at Otavi on the 1st of July 1915 and were defeated, surrendering on the 9th of July at Korab. Meanwhile, Jan Smuts in the south landed at Luderitz. After securing the town, he advanced inland, capturing Kirtmannshoop in May 1915. Two other columns then joined him. One had made it overland all the way from Kimberley, and the other disembarked at Fort Nollith and then marched north. The remaining German forces were caught between Boerte in the north and Smuts in the south. Within two weeks, the main German units surrendered. But it still wasn't over. Even further north, a number of clashes had taken place on the border between Portuguese Angola and German Southwest Africa. The Germans won most of these skirmishes and actually advanced north into the Humbay region of southern Angola, then retreated as word came of the surrendering going on to the south. Eventually, this small German force also surrendered. By the end of this war that was fought on the sidelines of the major battles of the Western Front, 113 South Africans were killed in action. Another 153 died of snake bites, non-battle injuries and illness. Southwest was already costing South Africans their lives. 263 were wounded. On the German side, 103 were killed and 890 taken prisoner. South Africa finally gained control over the territory that Herero leader Chief Maharero Kajamua had initially offered to Britain as a protectorate all that way back in the 1870s, and could very well have become its fifth province. One of the unique aspects of the new territory was a map-induced corridor taken from northern Bechuanaland and called the Caprivi Strip. It was named after the German Chancellor at the time, and we're talking 1890. The Heligoland zanzibar Treaty ceded Germany this tiny slither of land, which was to turn into a killing zone during the early part of the border war, in the 1970s and 80s. The corridor meant Namibia now reached as far as the Zambezi River, and at a point to this day, three countries converge there, Namibia, Botswana and Zimbabwe, while five countries converge at the Strip, if you include Zambia and Angola. This was a security nightmare, and one town here in particular would become synonymous with the upcoming border war, Katima Mulilo. After the First World War ended, 
South Africa administered Southwest Africa as part of a League of Nations mandated territory from 1919. Now, the mandate system was formed as a compromise between those who advocated an allied annexation of all former German and Turkish territories and the others put forward by those who preferred some sort of international trusteeship that should control these colonies until they governed themselves. All former German and Turkish territories were classified into three types of mandates. Class A, predominantly in the Middle East, Class B, which encompassed Central Africa, and Class C, which were reserved for the most sparsely populated or least developed German colonies, including Southwest Africa, German New Guinea, and the Pacific Islands. It soon became apparent the South African government had interpreted the mandate as a veiled annexation. In 1922, Jan Smuts testified before the League of Nations Mandate Commission and said Southwest Africa was being fully incorporated into the Union and should be regarded as a fifth province of South Africa. According to Smuts, this constituted annexation in all but name. That did not go down well at the League. Through the 1920s and 30s, the League of Nations complained that of all the mandatory powers, South Africa was the most delinquent with regards to observing the terms of its mandate. There was no attempt at developing Southwest into an independent nation. Then the Mandate Commission vetoed a number of South African policy decisions, including proposals to nationalize Southwest African railways and then change the pre-existing borders. There was even sharper criticism leveled at South Africa's disproportionate spending on the local white population, which was defended by Pretoria, which said whites paid more tax, so they should get the lion's share of social spending. The League responded by declaring that all citizens should receive the same treatment under law. Pretoria was told that there was nothing in the mandate that allowed for a special obligation towards whites. Smuts ignored their declarations. Then South Africa gave the whites of Southwest their own representation in the parliament in Cape Town itself, while also building a whites-only administration in the Southwest Africa Legislative Assembly in Windhoek. And yet, the real power in Southwest rested in the hands of the South African-appointed administrator. For the next 24 years or so, the system was fairly stable until the end of the Second World War. Then the real story starts. In 1946, the newly formed United Nations General Assembly revoked the decision granting South Africa a mandate over German Southwest Africa. UN nations overwhelmingly voted that it should be allowed to become an independent country as soon as possible. South Africa rejected this. Too many lives had been lost on the parched ground just to walk away, but there were other reasons. Not only were the Afrikaners based in Southwest, as their history in the region stretched back before 1870, but South Africa had the all-important port of Wolfus Bay to consider. Yes, that port stuck in the middle of Southwest had created a major political challenge, much as Gibraltar does today for the Spanish and the British. Soon after hostilities of the Second World War ceased, the clamour for independence by sub-Saharan African countries began in earnest. After the Second World War, Article 77 of the United Nations Charter converted South Africa's mandate to what was called a trusteeship. Critically, the UN failed to describe what a trusteeship meant, declaring that the terms would be subsequently discussed. This disconnect between the UN and South Africa would turn into a gulf within a very short time. 
1946, South African Union Representative Heaton Nichols addressed the General Assembly and announced that self-determination in German Southwest was impossible since the territory was too underdeveloped and underpopulated to function as a strong independent state. This was presumed to be a rather self-serving exercise. Smuts followed on and informed the General Assembly that Southwest had been so thoroughly incorporated within South Africa that a UN-sanctioned annexation was no more than a necessary formality. It was basically an annexed state anyway. Then at that time, the UN Assembly, with the backing of the five major powers in the world, decided that all mandates should be placed under the trusteeship of the UN and not allow South Africa to annex South West Africa. This upset Pretoria no end, which had spent a lot of time and effort administrating the territory. 37 member states voted to block a South African annexation of South West Africa. Nine abstained. There are always forks in the road when decisions are made, and in this case South Africa had arrived at one of those forks. South Africa's internal politics also changed at this time. Right-wing politicians were incensed by the UN's position. It was only two years later that the National Party took power in South Africa, with Prime Minister Donnie Malone prepared to adopt a far more aggressive stance concerning the annexation of South West. The Nationalists won the 1948 election in a kind of shock result, booting out the SA party of Jan Smuts. Only a year later, in 1949, the fight with the UN entered a new phase. That's when a formal statement was issued to the General Assembly, which proclaimed that South Africa had no intention of complying with any trusteeship nor was it obliged to release new information or any reports about how the territory was administrated? It would go it alone. Simultaneously, the Southwest African Affairs Administration Act of 1949 was passed by the South African Parliament, which gave white Southwest Africans parliamentary representation and the same political rights as white South Africans. Meanwhile, the UN sent the case to the International Court of Justice to rule on Southwest international status. The ICJ duly ruled that while the UN could not demand a trusteeship, the South Africans could not arbitrarily decide if Southwest was a province or independent. It split the difference, if you like, coming down on either side. Of course, the National Party under Malan rejected the International Court's ruling as irrelevant, which further alienated the neutrals at the UN. South Africa was now quite happy to burn all its UN bridges. The UN immediately formed its own Committee on Southwest Africa, which issued independent reports on how the territory was being administered, further infuriating the Conservatives in the National Party in Pretoria. They tried to stop UN officials from actually entering the country. The National Party became apoplectic when these UN reports were increasingly scathing about their administration. This was the period in which the National Party began to impose its harsh system of racial segregation or apartheid on Southwest Africa as well as back home, including the Population Registration Act, the Pass Laws, the Group Areas Act. In a world rapidly decolonizing, this was out of step with international diplomacy. Defiance campaigns against the Pass Laws began to sweep South Africa starting in 1952, and afterwards the African National Congress organized the South West African Progressive Association, or SWAPA. This was a group of intellectuals and students, but a much more potent organization was about to take off in Cape Town, of all places. 
That's where the Ovumberland People's Congress was launched by migrant Ovumba laborers living in the Western Cape. It changed its name to the Ovumberland People's Organization, or OPO, and identified with Southwest Independence. Swapa and the OPO then joined together and became the Southwest African National Union, or SWANU, in September 1959. Meanwhile, in South Africa, the nationalists were emptying cities of black, Indian and coloured people, pushing them out of the central business districts and suburbs into specially created townships in a process known as forced removals. Connected to this philosophy and starting in December 1959, Pretoria began forcing black and coloured residents of old location in Vintuk to move out of their neighbourhood near the city centre. Swanu then immediately organised a bus boycott and mass demonstrations in response, and on the 10th of December, the South Africans opened fire on Swanu protesters in Vintuk during one of these demonstrations. Eleven protesters were shot dead. This caused an immediate split in Swanu, with the former Avamberland People's Organization officials, who were more radical, leaving and petitioning UN members in New York for support. But their weakness when it came to international support was they were identified as a Vambu, one ethnic group. This didn't sit well with UN logic. So the Ovamboland People's Organization changed its name to Southwest African People's Organization. The new organization marketed itself as a group of many ethnicities and races. Thus, Swapo was born. Within a few months, Tanzania recognized Swapo and allowed the organization to open an office in Dar es Salaam. Swanu, meanwhile, was still talking about negotiation, but Swapo had decided that armed struggle was the only solution. If you look at Swanu and Swapo's manifestos, they were remarkably similar when it came to basic political aims. Both advocated the abolition of colonialism and all forms of racialism, the promotion of pan-Africanism, and called for the economic, social, and cultural advancement of Southwest Africans. However, Swapo was far more radical and wanted immediate independence under black majority rule to be granted by 1963, whereas Swanu was trying to ensure a place at the table through negotiation. Swapo also promised universal suffrage, free health care, free public education, nationalization of all major industry, and the forcible redistribution of foreign-owned land in accordance with African communal ownership principles. But those were remained unspecific, but its socialist messaging unnerved South African officials. With African nations breaking away from their former colonial powers, the moment was ripe for this organization to set up an armed wing, which it did, creating the Southwest African Liberation Army, or SWALA, in 1962, and they modeled that on the ANC's Mkontua Sisu. This elevated Swapo in the eyes of Africans fighting colonialism and drew attention from the Russians. The first seven Swapo cadres were selected and sent from Dar es Salaam to Egypt and then onwards to the Soviet Union for military training in 1962. They returned within a year to set up a makeshift military camp in Tanzania. Things were moving swiftly towards armed conflict. It was just a matter of time. What has started as a mandate was rapidly deteriorating into something far more malignant for the youth of South Africa. At the time, the Cold War domino theory about geopolitics had taken off. This held that the Soviet Union, supporting nationalist movements worldwide, were actually using them as dominoes. Each country that became communist 
then fell into the Soviet sphere of influence. It also held that it was only a matter of time before Southwest and then South Africa would be next. At the same time, uranium in large quantities had been discovered in Southwest, close to Swakopmund, which further applied the minds of the Cold War nations, which were on the verge of a nuclear war consistently in the early 1960s. Another strategic fact was that South Africa was still very important when it came to world shipping lanes from the East to Europe and America. The West supported South Africa covertly, if not overtly. Milan and his nationalist cabinet then tried to woo NATO, saying they should be part of a defence alliance, but Great Britain thought this a very bad idea because of apartheid. The Americans, on the other hand, while constantly pressurising the nationalists about apartheid, had already eyed the French departure from Indochina with misgiving. They saw similarities between Vietnam and African nations falling into the Russian ambit, the domino theory. And the South Africans had also sent thousands of men to support the Americans during the Korean War, and this had endeared them to Washington, which meant overt military support was secured from Washington at least until the very early 1960s. Then it became covert. We can see how the sides are starting to stack up. We must halt now for this episode. Next week we'll hear how developments in Angola were to impact Southwest Africa as the region slid inexorably towards full-blown war. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have time or head off to abwarpodcast.com and click on the South African Border Wars page. You're welcome to post comments there by email or you can contact me directly on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, stay safe. Bye-bye.